Bring me your tired, your stressed, your overwhelmed and anxious, yearning for some joy in life. It's time to go out and play. Welcome back to Playgrounding. This is Kara Stewart-Fortier. Today I'm going to start off with a short reading. That's something I don't do, like I don't think I ever have done it, but I think it'll really help us set the stage um, for what we're going to be talking about today. It's from the introduction of a book called Forget Memory by Anne Davis-Basting. It's published by John Hopkins University Press. Here we go. Roger and Rasiel McConnell sat uncomfortably in the doctor's office. They knew something was wrong with Roger. They were afraid to hear it named, but they wanted an answer and to know if there was something they could do about it. They are doing kind of people. Roger is an active member of community committees and Rocille is deeply involved in her synagogue's efforts to promote just social justice. So they made the appointment and opened themselves to bad news. Theirs was not an ideal encounter with the medical establishment. I was not happy because after he told us, says Rochelle with a clear edge of anger in her voice, the psychiatrist walked out. He said, my nurse will bring you the packet. Well, the next day I told him how I felt and I said, I can't believe you people deal this way. Roger tumbled into depression. Gil cares for Victoria at home. He talks glowingly of their long life together, of raising children and bowling leagues and ballroom dancing and going to movies. They were a couple rich with friends. Even with Vic deep in dementia, they danced around the living room when Lawrence Welk comes on the television. Only now, Gil and Vic are alone. Their friends stopped visiting years ago. Gil says he can understand it. He can understand that people feel awkward around them, but the depth of his loneliness is palpable. He lies awake at night thinking about it. Now don't get sad, this is Playgrounding after all. Because today you're going to hear from Mary Fridley and Susan Massad about their work running what they call the Joy of Dementia Workshop. Um, it has a tagline says, you've got to be kidding me of their workshop title because it's an acknowledgement that it's strange for people to hear the words joy and dementia in the same sentence. But wait until you meet these brilliant women. Susan Massad is a retired physician with 51 years of practice and teaching in internal medicine and a founding member of Reimagining Dementia, a creative coalition for justice. In 2006, Susan launched a senior theater workshop, The New Timers, um, at New York City's All Stars Project and is a faculty member of the Eastside Institute, where she leads conversations on health, wellness, and growing older. She is co-author of a chapter on her work with health teams for an upcoming book, published by the Taos Institute, and is co-author of several articles on the joy of dementia, including one recently published in the Palgrave Encyclopedia on critical perspectives in mental health. Susan has also written a play, Remember, Remember, that deals with aging and memory loss. Now, Mary Fridley is a pro bono director of special projects for the Eastside Institute in New York City and coordinator of Reimagining Dementia, a creative coalition for justice as well. An accomplished teacher and workshop leader, Mary practiced social therapy for 12 years and uses the social therapeutic approach as an institute faculty member. She was featured in February 19's Washington Post article, Changing the Tragedy Narrative, why 
why a growing camp is promoting a more joyful approach to Alzheimer's, and with Dr. Susan Massad, is co-author of several articles and chapters on the joy of dementia, including one for the Australian Journal of Dementia Care. Mary is also a guest blogger for agebuzz.com, a playwright and nonprofit funding consultant. Now, meet Susan and Mary. Susan and Mary, I am so honored to have you guys come and talk to me today on Playgrounding. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, well, I kind of want to start with um, just who you are um, and how you came together and how, well, even just how you started in this work and how you came together to um, create this beautiful mm -hmm. Joy of Dementia workshop that you guys have been doing. Um, Susan, do you want to start out? Um, sure. <laughs> well, who I am, <laughs> I guess, is I am a retired physician. I practiced and taught physician educator in various institutions uh, around the country uh, for over 50 years. And I retired from practice 13 years ago. And um, I think, you know, one of the, if, how did you come to this is I've always been almost from the beginning of those 50 years interested in the medical conversation, what doctors and patients do together and how they relate. And I began very early on, you know, when you look at this questioning what is called the medical model, the problem solution approaches, because it, 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 and just to say something about the medical model of that approach, it assumes that there's the provider physician, usually we can use that shorthand, mm -hmm. is the knower, the expert, the authority. And the patient is the naive receiver of that information. And that is the, and then you're going to do something vis-a-vis -vis accepting that advice and, you know, creating your health or going mm -hmm. on your health. And um, I sort of both saw it as very authoritarian and problematic because it leaves the patient's voice out. They are unheard. Who they are, how they are experiencing their illness, how they understand it, their strengths, what they want to do with it and what they want to do about it and what their limitations might be. But, you know, some people really love regimens and diets and so yeah. other people <laughs> don't. <laughs> That's important if you're treating something like diabetes where there's, you know, some dietary change. Mm -hmm. So, so that's just an example. So um, I, as a, as a, I was also a, an activist in the sixties. That's when I, I graduated from medical school in 62. And um, I, as a community activist, physician organizer, I began to explore then for a number of years, seeing patients in different ways to see how we could amplify their voice, how we could bring their voice into the conversation. Wow. And, uh, you know, I expand with groups. I help people organize health teams. And, and I also um, would lead work, community workshops for a number of years, for oh, 20, 25 years, for people to be able to not just they were quotes giving you the facts of cancer, but to talk about it, how it was in their communities for me to learn as much as from them. So, mm -hmm. so when, you know, dementia entered my life, which it did, had did many, many people, uh, which was um, 
my oldest sister was diagnosed, I think, about eight years ago, and family mem- family members, and then patients that I was very close to, and then friends. I have many friends now who are living with dementia. And uh, the I brought my, my skepticism of the medical model, <laughs> which was how a dementia is approached. And it's, it's very, to me, that kind of approach and the conversations about de- dementia as a medical condition, mm-hmm. it just called out for being able to do something different, to create something different and to build with people living with dementia and people caring for people with dementia and to, to try attempt to create something different. And about halfway through my career, I met the Eastside Institute. I moved from the West Coast to the East Coast and I met Mary. <laughs> I think we've been friends for, and co-workers at the Eastside Institute for 40 years. Um, you are aware. I mean, I think you're familiar with the Eastside Institute. Absolutely. <laughs> but it, as, as you know, they began to explore and work with and develop a practice of social therapeutics and social therapy that brought play and performance and philosophical conversation and into the arena of people from many, many different disciplines who were interested in creating something, social change, that were interested in working with people in groups to grow and develop and to create some new possibilities, new ways of doing things in their life. And not just in that, in the sense of people with dement, living with dementia, but people who are caring for people with dementia, who are people who are neighbors of people with dementia, mm-hmm, yeah. which we've come to see as the group, the yeah. dementia ensemble. So that's, uh, I think it was through the, that collaboration that we, uh, Mary and I began, who for our own, you know, personal experiences, began to think about and work through the East Side about how we could bring this approach into, into the dementia conversation. What would it mean for people who are normally seen as gone or lost to develop and grow? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just very yeah. interesting. And I think over the last four years since we've been doing it, and the joy of dementia, quotes, you've got to be kidding, is just one of the conversations and, and um explorations that we've been doing in terms of how do we impact on the culture of dementia? How do we change that? That's great. And, and and I have one more question before we get to Mary. I just wanted to ask you, have you always been interested in the theater arts or is that something you came to later after you moved to the East Coast? I've always... My family loved the theater and we went to the theater a lot as Mm -hmm. I was growing up and my mother always wanted to be an actress. So we had sort of amateur theatricals (laughs) at home. Uh, And again, it was through meeting the development community that I became more interested, involved in the, the performance, what performance in the theater (laughs) and performance Mm -hmm, in life, you know, and, and to make those, that, that connection. And by chance, I just happened to be asked, by the founder of the Castillo Theater, Fred Newman, if I would develop a program for seniors. And oh, 2006, we moved, had moved to the big space on 42nd Street mm-hmm. and there was room and during the day there weren't 
there weren't many activities for young people there. But so he asked me to if I would develop a program for older people. And wow. um, and we, oh, we brought various donors of the theater and theater goers and, and uh, parents of and of the young people. You know, we opened it up That's and great. that was my first. We started a group called the New Timers. It was a performance space program for older people over 50. Such and, a great name. <laughs> yeah. And up until pan, the pandemic, we were meeting. <laughs> so regular, we had we had a semester kind of program. It was an offering, a free offering. Hmm. And both creating theater, we wrote some plays and, and it inspired me to do some writing, you know, playwriting to get more involved. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow, that's exciting. I, I uh, Someone who's brought up in, who's, whose field is medicine and working with the theater. This is very, very intriguing. And Mary, what you bring to the table, let me know a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to this work. Sure. And first of all, thank you so much for hosting us. I've been <sighs> having, a, Susan and I led a workshop yesterday for colleagues yeah. in um, the UK, and I've just been having many wonderful conversations this week. So, but I never find myself talked out. <laughs> I never get tired of talking. And every conversation no. I learn something and I grow. So Aww, this is that's just awesome. another delightful opportunity. Thank you uh, so much. I mean, you know, I mean, one simple way, I guess, to start would be my mom died of late stage dementia. Um, she and I have friends as do, does Susan who have been diagnosed. So it's a it's a part of it's it's in that sense I I've developed a bit more of an up close and personal relationship to it. Mm-hmm. But really I my kind of passion for creating kind of radical alternatives um, to the and and transforming the dementia conversation actually began maybe four or five years ago. And when Susan and I, I I don't even, we, neither of us remembers exactly why we began to look at dementia. But when I started reading much more about just the traditional literature um, and how it was talked about and, and practiced, I just, I really had a, just a deep gut, non-intellectual response of this is just wrong. It it just violated every moral bone in my body. Yeah. I thought, and as Susan speaks to so eloquently, it's scientifically flawed. Um, and regardless of intent, it's just cruel mm-hmm. um, that, you know, we've created a, an, a lens, an approach, a, a method that systematically denies, demeans, and dismisses millions of people as no yeah. longer part of the world that is no longer there as effectively dead in life. And these are literally the words that get used. I mean, mm-hmm. that sadly, I'm not making that up. No. Um, so if anything, I think my passion for it was, and you know, and, and the more we explored it and particularly and kind of beginning to discover some of the people who fortunately, and there are many, many, many colleagues around the world um, who like we, are, are, I think, share this outrage and are bringing play, performance, the arts, improvisation, other creative alternatives into the conversation. And particularly one, Karen Stoby, who I, I don't know if this is literally true, but for me, she's certainly a pioneer in the use of improvisation. Kind of just reinforced what um, 
I think we were beginning to come to is that improv and these other creative approaches are just much better suited Mm -hmm. to helping people navigate the uncertainty that is dementia. It's a deeply unsettling condition. And and not to mention that we even live in a deeply unsettled world, Mm -hmm. but to really, you know, bring all of that creative energy into transforming what we came to call the tragedy narrative. Yeah. That surrounds this this condition. And I know that you are um, studying for your chaplaincy, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to, and I had I know I had mentioned to you before when we've spoken, but I want to just because I, I I'm just come to like her so much, and she is a, a minister um in New York at the Riverside Church. Uh, and her and her ministry was older people and um people living with dementia and she's written a book called on vanishing mortality dementia and what it means to disappear and her name is lynn castile harper and i Mm -hmm. think this very brief paragraph that i'm going to read i think for me captures so eloquently why this work is so important um and she's what I'm about to read builds on her saying that, you know, she had met with a, a you know, a, a friend of hers, another minister, and he was sharing how in all the sessions that he does with care partners of people living with dementia is he ha- he always tells them that the their loved ones are, quote, still there mm-hmm. and their their, quote, core never leaves. And she says. Lynn says, I'm glad for his admission. I am also troubled that it is needed. I doubt caregivers of persons with terminal heart disease need such instruction, or caregivers of infants need reminders that even though their babies cannot talk or use the bathroom, they remain people. Mm. That we need reminders that persons living with dementia are, quote, still people, elevates my curiosity and my suspicion about the peculiar burdens dementia-causing diseases bear. We seem to have placed dementia beyond the scope of ordinary human imagining, as if this condition alone reveals some nasty, shame-filled secret, the ease with which we all disappear. Wow. And I, and I wow. just, um, I was so touched by that and kind of mirrored, actually, literally a few in kind of corresponding conversations, a colleague of ours, when we were talking about this work and all that goes on, she just said, and, and this woman is not steeped in dementia. It's not her field. She just said, you know, why do we hold people living with dementia to such a higher standard? Wow. And I think it may, has made me think, and why do we hold ourselves as a culture, the broader culture, to such a low one? Mm-hmm. You know why? And so I believe we can and do better. And I obviously happen to believe that the work that Susan and I are doing um, and the work of so many other creative, innovative, passionate people um, is critically important, not just for people living with dementia, but for our world. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to say one more brief thing about yeah. that, I don't want to go on and on. Okay. But as we've gone along over the last four years, I've really just. I've just started to broaden my lens so much and realize that because I think one of the insidious things about the tragedy narrative 
and I think this is what Lynn touches on, is it makes it seem like dementia is such an exceptional human experience that it's kind of beyond the pale. And we have to literally remove people so that they are, and they're just no longer part of, they're not viewed as, you know, as contributing anything, which I think is at least as tragic as the condition itself. Mm -hmm. But then I started thinking the other day and, and forgive me, I'm really thinking this through as we're talking. So you get the scoop. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. In our, in this, incredibly hypercognitive, knowing obsessed world. Mm-hmm. So many millions of people are are hurt. So for example, women, we're all women. And mm-hmm. I know this for me, and I have a sense of this for Susan, and I'm sure you've had it, but women are regularly demeaned and made fun of and dismissed for quote, not being rational and reasonable. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's it. And we're the emotional ones. Mm-hmm. Or children, I was thinking about, you know, children, millions of children, and especially in poor communities, are labeled as slow or delinquent or put in, quote, special classes, simply because classroom learning, if it will, is so rote and so deadly and irrelevant to their lives. Mm -hmm. But they're the ones punished and dismissed and labeled. And personally, that I was one of those. I was not a good, I'm not a good standard learner. Mm -hmm. I think I'm reasonably smart, Mm -hmm. but I think that much of the learning that I've done has been, I just do much better when it's experimental, experiential, when I have the freedom to fail, when I can imitate other people, you know, that you're, it's just, so that really has an impact. So in some ways to me, dementia is kind of coming, I'm coming to realize that it's just the, and I think an especially tragic symptom of the world that we've produced, but it's certainly not the only one. Mm-hmm. But I think if we can address it and kind of bring it much more out into the public, um, in a funny kind of way, I think it's I think it could open up ways, open up the conversation um, in in remarkable ways, but ways that would benefit from everyone. Um, I mean, it was, I had written an interview for someone, it's called Age Buzz. It's a, and, you know, because one of the, the things that I hate the most is this focus on our brains. Let's focus mm-hmm. on our reason and rationality and ability to, to, you know, to understand and to, to diagnose and label, whatever. It just, it, it, it just denies the multitude of other ways that we, in fact, really do and can connect all the time, creative ways, physical ways, poetic ways, silly ways. I mean, you know, writing a poem, falling in love, marveling at, you know, how wonderful nature is, the majesty of a redwood. I mean, those aren't rational or logical acts. Mm -mm. And yet, you know, poets, lovers, nature enthusiasts are for the most part embraced. They're not Mm -hmm. feared. Um, But that, that, that doesn't necessarily extend to, however, that's not the dominant paradigm. Yeah. That's not that we have very few opportunities, if you will, to exercise our play, our creative muscles. And that's what, for me at least, and Susan can say more about how we do this. That's what the joy of dementia, both if you will, as a, as a call to action and as a workshop is trying to do. That's great. Yes, we are multidimensional 
as humans and just to lose one dimension doesn't take away our humanity. That's just such an incredible, incredible thing to think about. And I feel like as we go into discussing the the joy of dementia, the workshop. Um, you've got to be kidding me. As you, I love that that's the tagline for it. Um, I just want everyone listening to think of if you if you do have someone in your life who is experiencing dementia, just kind of some of the assumptions that you've had about that. And if you've never had someone in your who's close to you have dementia, like me. Um, I have been confronting all of my assumptions about what dementia means um, and what it would feel like to have someone close to me diagnosed, all the assumptions I would make. Um, So as we sort of move into hearing this, just kind of take a minute to just think of what you feel as you imagine that. And now listen to this description of this, Um, Susan and Mary, if you would tell me, tell us about this workshop. Tell us what you do. Like, How did it come about? What, What are you what do you do in these workshops? (laughs) <laughs> and Susan, you are muted. Just to let me remind you really quick. I didn't know if you. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> I saw you laughing, we but I couldn't hear you. <laughs> we all need a little help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Well, um, should I take, do you want me to do this? Now I'll start. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So the Joy of Dementia project was started about four years ago um, when we decided we wanted to if you want to call it, enter the dementia conversation. And um, the workshop is a, it's a conversation, it's a workshop, it's a place for people to play and make discoveries and create new performances. Um, And at this point, we've offered the workshop to, I don't know, I I would say 35 we've done maybe, um, maybe even more, uh, to various groupings of people. And something what we we've learned is um, in in creating these conversations is that although when somebody says, "Will you come and do a joy of dementia, you know, workshop with us?" We develop the workshop that sites of specific who we're doing it for. You know, some people have much more experience with theater and improv. Some people have never done that. So what kind of, how do we introduce improvisation, which we do in our work? But most importantly, we ask people to expand the invitation to as wide a group as possible. To, we found that having people living with dementia, people caring for people with dementia, family caregivers and partners and professionals and professionals, people working in the field. And just then there's, for anybody who is worried or concerned about this, often people will, you know, who are not diagnosed, probably will never have a diagnosis of dementia, but we all worry about it. And we worry Mm -hmm. about it from a very early age on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, it's also a, a place where people can question some of the assumptions. And this is what we call performed or philosophical conversation. You know, if you you say, well, I, I can't I couldn't do this with a person with dementia because of X. We want to explore that and be curious and find out well, what are the assumptions why you couldn't do improvisation, for example, with people with dementia or people who of a different culture than yours that you don't know, you know, mm-hmm. and who have, you know, a wide range of cultural differences. So, and I think 
the the what is helpful and we do improv games we do exercises we have conversation in the workshops and in every workshop though we relate to all the participants as a member of a performance ensemble we are creating this group together with them every time cool. we, we have the workshop <laughs> and <laughs> and relate to everybody who's having something to contribute to the conversation and that's i think where the improvisation as a as a as a method as an approach to accept everybody's everything people give as an offer and to mm -hmm. build with that yeah. yeah. And that people relate to themselves, begin to relate to themselves as this group, not just as individual people with whatever their individual hangups or flaws are, but as a grouping of people that create can create something much bigger than themselves mm -hmm. together. As I think one of the, the issues with dementia is the isolation that occurs. Yes almost from the point of diagnosis. I mean, just to, to add a bit to what Susan's saying about the, the are relating to people as an ensemble and they're creating the group, they're creating mm -hmm. the environment, they're creating the workshop. Yeah. It, is in, it is in the creating of the conversation and the context that is the culture change we're looking for. Yeah. That we, but it's not a, it's not a, it's not an alienated activity mm -hmm. that, okay, well, if you do that, then you can go out and <laughs> do the real thing. This is the culture change of people mm -hmm. learning how to have and create new kinds of conversations. Um, and it, one of the things that I just was thinking about is, you know, I was watching a, a, a wonderful debate. It was a debate between James Baldwin and William Buckley, and it was back in the 60s. And, Obviously, the issue of race came up and and Baldwin, you know, I mean, obviously, Baldwin strongly recognized the impact of racism on people of color, black people. But what he chose, to, what he spoke about is calling attention to the impact, the, the very negative um, and destructive impact it has on white people. Mm. That it hurts, it, 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 it destroys your soul to participate in that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, and so I, I think I feel similarly and it's made me think about the tragedy narrative that people embrace it. And we're talking about families and the impact it has when they the only they can thing they can do is view it as a tragedy. Mm -hmm. Clearly, if you create that kind of, of environment, that's just negative and and and, you know, doesn't include love and laughter and joy and new possibilities and just fun. Well, that doesn't just magically separate out the person living with dementia. Mm -mm. That that harms the mental health of everybody. Yeah. And we see this played out because care partners often suffer from depression, anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, some are suicidal. I mean, it's so it really is. And, you know, it's like and, and it's funny because I think we understand that. In funny kind of way, I think we understand it sometimes better for plants and animals than we do with people. <laughs> yeah. Because when Susan and I talk about creating environments, it's not like it's it's really not brain surgery. I mean, everyone, I, I, I let's let me most everyone, <laughs> you know, would not plant daisies in a desert because you would know that's not the environment for growth. Yeah. And everyone kind of acknowledges that if you you beat a dog or, you know, and, and many people do, sadly, then that dog is going to be damaged. Yeah. Um, and yet with people. We I think we can 
I, I think we could pay more attention to how environments affect all of us. Because, you know, I mean, you've, I'm, I'm sure it's that we all have. You've been in very negative work environments. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you can't be very productive. Mm-mm. So, again, we're just saying, hey, can we take a moment and we can we have some new tools to offer. Yeah. That might help you in kind of just making your life a lot more joyable and more joyful. And again, that many, many, many people we meet embrace that. They love it. They love us. It's very touching. And some people, you know, get very angry at us. It's like, how dare you even use the word joy and dementia in the same word? And often I think they think that we're saying, oh, yes, you should just laugh it off or find it fun. And we're not saying that. I mean, yes, and to Susan's point Mm -hmm. earlier, it has nothing to do with being funny. And that has nothing to do with the being comical. It's kind of radically accepting what somebody gives you and building with that. Yeah. Whatever that is. And it could be babbling. It could be something you, quote, don't understand. Mm-hmm. But it just frees everyone to explore and go different places mm-hmm. and find some discover and, and, and find more nourishment yeah. um, for themselves and their souls and their spirits. Um, and that's, you know, that's just wonderful when it happens. Yeah. And you use that as one of your, one of your games you had told me about as an example using yes. And what, what happens when you actually do a play a workshop game and use yes. And in this environment, in one of your workshops, how do you do it? Is it just like going to to an improv class? You know, (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) we keep it it simple (laughs) and and do it. So, I, I mean, often we do a yes and yes, but exercise. Mm-hmm. So you you tell a story using or you plan a party, mm-hmm. you know, you give the group a task and you say every everybody has to just say, yeah, yes. And mm-hmm. or well, they first they do it. Yes, but <laughs> and you go around and you start with your yes, but mm-hmm. and. The, the next time around you do it with yes and and you experience the difference you can see the difference mm-hmm. I, I think there's a I think people get it mm-hmm. I don't know get it but it, it really appreciate that there is a difference you can take things in a whole different much more creative direction mm-hmm. if you're yes anding and yes anding in addition to Curiosity is a wonderful, wonderful um, kind of, uh, I, I don't know what to say. It's a wonderful thing. Yes, it <laughs> it's is. a wonderful <laughs> approach and thing to do is, is if, if, you know, you're stuck <laughs> you are even not stuck. Mm-hmm. I think that it's a very giving yes and kind of thing to to bring your curiosity to that. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. You had also mentioned mm-hmm. before that, and it was one of the things that a lot of us have experienced, even though I haven't had anyone in my immediate, you know, family mm-hmm. or, you know, close friends. Mm-hmm. But when I ha- would meet someone, um, mm-hmm. just having them tell the same stories over and over, you had a unique mm-hmm. way of approaching that in these workshops as well. If you wouldn't mind talking about that, um, how to respond to the same story <laughs> over and over instead of getting annoyed. <laughs> well, I think it's just Susan's point. It's like, be curious. Yeah. Be curious. 
I mean, I, 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 in the sense, of, okay, so your your mom or your loved one or your grandmother says, oh, my gosh, I saw Aunt Susie yesterday. Mm-hmm. Well, you could say, you know, oh, Aunt Susie's dead. Aunt Susie's dead <laughs> and you just, you know, get over it, Mom. Or you could say, oh, tell me more about the visit. Um, tell me more about Aunt Susie. Mm-hmm. And I think those words, and I, I really admire, and, you know, many of the the practitioners in this field because I think they're kind of learning but I've grown to I think tell me more Mm -hmm. is a one once three of the most wonderful words in the universe Mm -hmm. not just for people living with dementia but if somebody says to you and every bone in your body wants to say to give an opinion which is what we do in our (laughs) languaging in this culture oh you can't possibly (laughs) take a moment take a breath and say oh Huh, that's interesting. I've never thought about it that way. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. So that it's not a matter of whether you agree, disagree, hate it, love it. It's an opportunity to discover something, to learn more about that person. And to and and I think in many cases, discover some ways you actually can come together. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there's not a lot of support for that. Yeah. Um, and I just think just briefly, I mean, you know, I was thinking about, you know, how we relate to babies and young children, yeah. which actually, I mean, one of the things we talk about with the tell and why we raise the, you know, why we talk about how we relate to babies is because one of the things we try to help people see is actually we do have life experiences that if we were more aware of them, they actually could be very valuable in this, in, in, in relating to dementia. So with babies, you know, you I, you were a baby. I was a baby. Susan was a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, we say, well, the time, the And nobody says, I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah. Go away. Come back. Let you learn how to speak. Oh. No, we, incri- we, we, we create lo- lovely, vibrant, supportive environments in which everyone plays. Yeah. So, you know, the, the language speakers, the parents go, oh, you want your bottle? Yep. Let me get your bottle. You know, I, it's just, it's a, it's a languaging game. And that's, in mm-hmm. fact, how babies and all of us learn how to speak. Mm-hmm. But at no point is it an environment that you can, pre- you, it's an environment in which you can pretend, you can play, you can imitate. And that, and that's so fascinating because one of the things that you had me thinking of when we first had our first discussion was to play with what the word memory even means um, to to open it up and, and imagine that memory or to understand that memory is imagination. And I, uh, yeah. I guess that makes absolutely perfect sense. But it feels weird because I feel like I, I identify my memories as something that's not imagination. And, and so what you guys got me thinking of is that what it means to remember at all is something that I may not completely understand and that maybe memories aren't all there are to a person um, Mm -hmm. in that sense. I guess I just imagine that all of the things that have happened to me up until now are me. And if suddenly Mm -hmm. all of those things that I've done and those people, those conversations I've had and those things that I've learned, if those were to go away, do I go away? And you really had me thinking differently about that. Um, and so <laughs> that's so, so fascinating because a few other people in workshops that we've done have said that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd really love to ask you. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm very curious. I'm not critical at all. Yeah. I think it's I, I don't have the same relationship 
to memory. Mm -hmm. Uh However, in trying to practice what we preach, Mm -hmm. tell me more about why, why, why are your memories you like, and, and that, and that if they were somehow not to be there, you wouldn't be there. And I'm really asking curiously, (laughs) I I, I, like, how, how do you understand that? Or how have you lived that? Well, I'm, I've been in a process myself of of uh, understanding how certain events in my life that I've that I've blocked out so traumatic things how mm-hmm. the, under the surface somewhere and I'm, even though I've blocked them out they've been affecting me my most of my adult life and so as as a part of my you know therapeutic stuff and w- working on that kind of thing um, working those things out you know doing therapy around those kinds of issues and remembering them and then reframing them and all of that has helped me to become free of basically kind of the chains that that start to pin you down when you have something like CPTSD or something like that, like traumatic events and how you remember them and how you hold on to them. That's, you know, so that's something that mm-hmm. not maybe yeah. not everyone goes there directly. But I've also sure. realized in in remembering and in reframing, I feel this certain way, but I, I'm also, so in my head for a while, I've, I've kind of had this idea that all of those things that happen to me and all those memories about them form how I interact with the world. And that's true. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. underneath all of that is something else too, because I was still me long before those things happened to me. And, and I've, I keep going back to the idea of childhood um, you know, beginner's mind in Buddhism, um, uh, you must become like a little child in, in, you know, Jesus teachings and just different things that there's something about remembering the significance of who we are underneath all of those adult things, underneath all of those memories, all of those things we achieved, all those things, the, the traumas that happened to us. Um, and I guess I'm making it sound way more complex than maybe it needs to, but I just, no, 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 no. yeah, no, I just, I just find it fascinating that mm-hmm. when I, when I started reading is forget memory, forget memory uh, yes, um, yes. by Alice Davis Basting. And I started to read it. I had to stop because even those first few scenarios, she, she sort of the tableaus she sets at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I just thought it really, really made me do a double take and all the, the work that you guys do has really impacted I know it's been a while since we last spoke, but I've just spent so much time thinking about it. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll shut up now and let you go. <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm, I'm, I'm really oh. glad you're saying it because yeah. I, I, I think, I, I mean, I think mm-hmm. that's how a lot of people relate mm-hmm. to marriage. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I, I don't think you're, I mean, I mean your take is your take mm-hmm. and I don't think it's mm-hmm. so totally unique. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was thinking about the, the I, I am my reactions are getting stronger and stronger. And you read this all the time and in some of the newspaper articles about people with dementia or this people with very good intentions, but you sort of see how this, if I ever hear this again, I just drives me off. Well, you can implement visitor restriction because they won't remember anyway. Oh, and, that that you hear that oh. often in in various things. Well, does it really make any difference? You know whether you know her her aunt comes to visit because she won't remember anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the, the ways that things are framed in that, and it 
you know, kind of thinking about memory and how we all are kind of have our different takes on it and mm-hmm. <laughs> what it is and how it works. But just thinking that even remembering, you can remember in all kinds of different ways. <laughs> you can remember through touch. You can remember through uh, creating a, a song, mm-hmm. you know, with music. You can remember through, you know, just a, a, a smell, you know, all the ways that people remember. And in the whole idea is you have to do it in a certain rational way, that memory has to be this way. Yes, cognitive, <laughs> very high level. I have to be able to say, oh, yes, I do remember that Aunt Sally came yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also interesting, it's isn't away. it? That, yeah. And I never thought about this before. Mm-hmm. But if you look at development in the most traditional ways of kind of the Piagetian, mm-hmm. you know, we go from we we go up kind of the rungs of the ladder mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. we reach certain stages and then we reach ourselves as fully evolved mm-hmm. human beings. And then we are who we are. Mm-hmm. But it's linear. It's, mm-hmm. Then memory kind of plays a funny role because I, I mean, I love memories. I, mm-hmm. I have very fond memories of my mom. I have a few that make me. <laughs> not so fun <laughs> but you know it's a, it's a mixed bag yeah. I guess though I guess I guess maybe it might be important to no one is saying don't have memories yeah or don't you know and they'll bring you whatever they bring mm-hmm. you however one I think what Ann Basting is introducing is well, what about continuously creating memories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is the is a memory one minute? Is it four minutes? Is it 40 years? What how do we how do we then gauge memory? Yeah. Like if, if so let's say the three of us speak and tomorrow none of this re- remembers it. Mm-hmm. Did it not happen? Now, fortunately, in our lifetimes, God knows everything gets recorded. I know, so this is especially a different <laughs> phenomenon. But, but, but that's still. a serious philosophical question that I think it would be valuable for everyone to explore. And mm-hmm. also, I mean, the thing that I kind of discovered in life is when I started realizing that even though all of my siblings were in this, what I believe to be the same social environments, mm-hmm. are quote, memories of what happened are dramatically yeah. <laughs> different so it's also the weaving together of memories become part of the stories that we want to tell about ourselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then the memories tend to support those stories and I'm not at all saying that cynically mm-hmm. but I think you have to at least open it up to that it's a it's perhaps like to 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 at least entertain that it's probably more complex yeah. than we tend to relate to it mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we can involve everyone in memory making activities yes. if we want. Yeah. Well, I, I'm really curious and I just I didn't plan to ask this, but now that we talked about Fred Newman a little bit and and I remember these times in like my old days of going to acting school and different improv things where mm-hmm. you communicate without words and those kinds of things. And I think about a child communicating without words like we've discussed, but I think a lot of people will think to themselves, well, I'm helping them develop. 
their speech. I'm helping them understand relationships. I'm helping them. And then I thought, oh, developing, because that would be a way that people could say, well, it's not the same in dementia because they're going downhill. You know, they're not developing anymore. But here I am talking to some Eastside Institute people. <laughs> so I want to ask, being and becoming, developing, you were just talking about re- you know, forming our ideas of the past and all these things. How do you talk about being and becoming and developing at this point in your life and comparing that to a child that can't, that can't understand all the things, you know? I, yeah. I hope you understand the question. <laughs> well, I'll start and then I would love to hear what Susan's going to say. I, I often think it, cause this is so common. I mean, yeah. Um, and that's why development and dementia never go together. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> it's not even a word it's, that's used. Yep. Um, I guess one of the things I would say shortly is development for us is a collective activity. Mm -hmm. You can't do it individually. You can behave. You can do a lot of things individually. You can't develop individually. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I learned from Fred is that the becoming, if you will, is is in the context of creating those environments that we were talking mm -hmm. about, that's where you become. So I think that, and, and the, the more commonplace example I give often is if you're on a, if you go to a, a play and there's often characters in the play that don't speak at all mm -hmm. for whatever reason, or say very little mm -hmm. or might even be intelligible, unintelligible. At the end of the play, very few people, if any, in the audience go, why was that person there? Like I could, I mean, they, they had no role there. Mm -hmm. No, they're part of creating the ensemble. Yep. And they're giving to it and the ways that they are giving to it. It's the ensemble's job to develop and take that somewhere and create the journey and to use that. But when the actors who didn't speak gets up to nod, they get the same applause. Yep. So why don't we give up, like, why won't we applaud the contributions of people living with dementia? I mean, I was, I just don't get it. Yeah. Like, and this is where, you know, there's a lovely project in the UK called Living Words, mm. where they go in with people in late stage and often really can't speak a lot. Um, and they, somebody sits with the person and just asks them, you know, how are you feeling about life today? And they just literally take down whatever the person says. They we have created over and over again, over yeah. and over again, whatever they say, they just write it down. They don't comment and they have turned it into two now two books of incredible poetry. That is just a, some of the most <sighs> wonderful things that I've ever read. They've created musical, like, like major musical pieces or orchestral pieces using those words. So in some ways, maybe it's introducing that our collective role would be too complete for them. And I think we live in a culture that's, if you will, is more used to competing with each other yes. rather than completing Ooh, for each other. That's so good. But not talking is not that's that's only one of the ways that we contribute. But it's our job as a culture. And that's what I mean by we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard. We need to complete for them. Mm -hmm. That's our responsibility, not theirs. Developing together. This is really, really incredible work. And you guys are not alone doing this kind of work. There are quite a few people. There's some books that you've recommended to me already. Um, and there's a kind of a coalition of people working on this. Can you tell me more about that, what you're a part of, and how someone might be able to get involved themselves? 
Well, it is, uh, Susan and I put out a call in April uh, during COVID, and as it was becoming clear that um, the impact of COVID was just, I mean, it was having a disproportionate impact on a lot of communities, Mm -hmm. certainly communities of color, but also it was just, it was disproportionately killing older Americans. And and as we've now seen way, way, way too many people living with dementia, and that continues. So we put out a call to a lot of the colleagues, some of whom we've talked about, and people just what we felt shared our passion and probably our anger, issued a, a call to action statement um, on in September. In September. We, yeah, and we formally launched. Um, and it is just a, a, a remarkable group of people. We now have about four, 450 members from about 23 countries. Yeah, and the, it was kind of a consensus or understanding in the grouping of people that came together is the deaths, you know, the excessive deaths of people living with dementia and older people. And care homes was not simply a thing of itself, just neglect <laughs> there. That it that it was underlie this is this narrative and understanding of of people with dementia as gone, no longer there. And in some ways it moved as disposable. Mm -hmm. So how this could be justified is I think in people, some people were more out of it. It, it, Who, who deserves, you know, attention Mm -hmm. in this country. So that if you impacting on the stigma, changing the narrative, changing the culture became something that we saw is not just simply changing the regulations at the nursing home, you know, which need changing, but that wasn't. Yeah. yeah. And doing it from the bottom up, mm-hmm. bottom that we are deeply committed that this is going to be created by the members. Mm-hmm. Whatever we would do will be a grassroots effort. Um, mm-hmm. And if people are interested, they can email us at reimaginingdementia at gmail.com. All right. Oh my goodness. Well, Oh, wow. This this I've been looking forward to this so much just for the purpose because it is just such a huge issue. And it and it really struck me right off the bat talking to you guys about this, that this is so needed right now. So thank you so much for taking the time today with me. Thank you for having us. This was a joy. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a review if you think that might help someone else find this. If you find it useful, you can help someone else discover us as well. Thank you so much and we will see you next week.